Hi, I'm Stuart Legere, Associate Artistic Director of Zupa. Welcome to Carry the Spark, Reflections on the Movement, a limited podcast series highlighting fascinating conversations with leading climate activists on the state of the climate crisis, the need for cautious optimism, and reflections on 50 years of the Ecology Action Centre. For more information, visit zupa.works or ecologyaction.ca. Here we go. and I used to work at the Ecology Action Center as a transportation coordinator and I am now a lecturer in responses to climate crises at the University of Manchester. Tell us just a little bit about your work at EAC and maybe something that stands out for you that you did like a moment or a story. I started at the Ecology Action Center. I started volunteering in high school and when I did a master's degree in environmental studies at Dal, I was also volunteered and that turned into a job um, as a sustainable transportation coordinator with Rebecca O'Brien way back in the day. (laughs) And I was there for a couple of years and left and then returned as transportation coordinator again, working with Lena Garrison and Jen Pally. One of the things, well, I'm so proud of working at the Ecology Action Center. It's one of my most favorite things that I've done in my life. And I have so many memories. The one that I think of often is the work that Lena and I did on the green mobility strategy, where we went around the province working with community groups, asking them what they needed in terms of sustainable transportation and accessibility. And we turned that into a plan. Um, and we really enjoyed the way that we did those consultations. They were really, um, they felt really authentic and mutually educational. We learned so much. And I think the participants learned a lot and we used different creative techniques to, to get at something new. And that resulted in a green mobility plan that um, I think had a role in the sustainable formation of a provincial sustainable transportation strategy. It was an amazing piece of work. Thanks. I was uh, I was really happy with that. Um, the creative approaches that we used, we used Play-Doh and markers and pipe cleaners and, and asked uh, participants to create their vision of sustainable mobility and, and distill that into a postcard message to the premier. It was, uh, I met so many interesting people who I still think of um, in, in their experiences that they shared through that. And that was not yesterday. I mean, that work was probably what, 20, 2009? 2008, I left the Ecology Action oh, Center. Okay. So it was yeah. before that. Yeah, I think so the plan launched after uh, in 2009. You are right. Okay. Very good. Yes, random, <laughs> random facts from my brain. Thinking about the impact that your work had, I mean, you talked about sort of methodologies, right? You talked about the playfulness and the kind of mutual listening um, that gets you to something that's really robust and meaningful in terms of a report to government. Obviously, the intent or the impact of that was uh, was something else. And, and what do you think are some of the qualities that EAC had or that you and the, your colleagues brought that might have uh, resulted in some of the impacts that came from that? Lena and I worked well, so well together as a team. Together, we had different backgrounds that complemented uh, each other. Uh, the fact that I was from Nova Scotia was really helpful in knowing the lay of the land. And Lena had uh, more more experience in the use of creative methods. Um, and so we were able to bring that together. And we also just 
sincerely believed things could be different and better for the environment and for people. People responded to that in the various communities we visited. And I remember we were in Wolfel at one session and one of the comments we got after the session uh, was simply like, this is what democracy should look like. And it was one of those like... I, I mean, I still remember that compliment. It was, um, there was this uh, appetite for sincere and deep engagement and shaping their communities and lives. Transportation intersects so much with our lives and the environment. And I think things have changed quite a lot in how we think about environment at EAC and in general, I would imagine. We saw it as more discrete issues. Like at the time, transportation was different because it was really intersectional. It was access and community resilience and uh, equity more than some of the other things we were talking about. But it was also about GHG reductions. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's shifted. I don't know. You, I mean, you're, you've been thinking about this for... Yeah, that's something I think about a fair bit. Yeah, the way we presented it back then was very much, it was climate change, but it was also accessibility and community vitality, livability. These days I'm thinking about how with pushes to centralize healthcare and education, that means that transport is baked into the DNA of activities in Nova Scotia. So if you centralize a high school, one main high school, then um, the students have to have often a fossil fueled form of mobility to get there. Um, And so questioning these efforts on one hand to consolidate, centralize, save money, efficiencies, streamline things. And on the other hand, what are the questioning how much we're building mobility into that transport and also um, with increasing disruptions from severe weather events, how much is that creating a, a brittleness or fragility in our, our ways of doing things in Nova Scotia? From a student trying to get to school to a, a home care worker trying to get to a senior citizen, as you said, it crosses through everything. Yeah. You did some interesting work after you left EAC around Hurricane Juan and some of that analysis of brittleness or of of responses to disaster and both community responses and transportation or mobility responses. Yeah, that was, uh, I went on um, eventually to do a PhD um, in environmental sociology, and I wanted to look at hurricane events like Hurricane Juan. These are the type of events that we're expecting more of with a changing climate and uh, these type of disruptive weather events. One of the things that struck me about that Hurricane Juan in particular was, um, I call it electrical and arboreal entanglements, but essentially when the trees came down and the power lines came down, blocking the road, so blocking transport, but also the power grid um, was down with profound effects on healthcare delivery and other things. And then the trees are entangled with that. And so really this recognition that the ecological and the the human are entangled <laughs> um, and uh, vulnerabilities in these systems bring the other systems down. Um, and so how can we, moving forward, think of transportation, sustainable transportation, as flows of humans and of ecologies, of water flows and trees? What? How do they, how does nature broadly have to move? Um, and how can humans work with that rather than dominating it? Um, and so it's a 
another shift in the way of thinking about sustainable transportation. It's it's putting the human and the environment on equal footing rather than saying <clears throat> the environment has to conform to wherever we want to put roads or that's uh extremely transformative thinking. <laughs> It's a big one. <laughs> no, yeah. s- no small tasks for us. Seniors <laughs> and EAC alum. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's a it's a huge paradigm shift, and it's it's decentering the human and saying the climate is sending us a message, and we need to listen to that message and reduce our impacts. Also, brace for the the disruption that is promised um, with climate change. A sociologist based in Ottawa, Raymond Murphy, and he describes this dance between the human and the non-human environment. In terms of practical examples, one is the Room for the River initiative in the Netherlands. Much of it is below sea level and they've struggled with flooding forever. That's part of their history and they have dikes just like in Nova Scotia. They spent a lot of time suppressing the water, pushing it back, trying to build up and fortify against the water. And they had a shift in relatively recent history, uh, I'm going to guess the 2010s, and they created, uh, in light of climate change, they created a new initiative called Room for the River, where they said, how does the river need to move? How do the rivers in the Netherlands, where do they need to go? Where do they want to go? How do their flood patterns naturally work? How will these be exacerbated by climate change? And how can we work with that rather than trying to deny that? Uh, and so that resulted in they had a series of initiatives, raising bridges and moving communities and a whole slew of things. But the idea was working with nature, not trying to dominate it. So that is a profound shift for our society. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, and we see that in some of our coastal work here, too, which we've been doing for years and, you know, about some of that allowing coasts to do what they naturally do to help protect us from climate change and extreme weather and and so on. Yeah, so yeah, the Living Shorelines projects is that's exactly the type of thing. So letting nature protect us. Your work, I mean you referenced it a bit in the play um as part of your public consultations, but it shows up like in a lot of metaphorical threads in your work and and in other ways too. I wonder if you, how you feel like that bringing in the kind of artistic and the non-linear, how that influences your work. Yeah, that's something I really value. And I attribute that to, in part, the Ecology Action Center. I think I, think I had a bit of that before, but it came into full fuller bloom um, during my time at the EAC is I taught a course this year at the University of Manchester called Disaster Mobilities of Climate Change. It was with third year undergrad students. For the course they had to write an essay and then they had to create creative project to complement the essay. So as a knowledge translation piece. So what are the key themes in the essay and how would you, which audience would you want to share this with and how will you convey that? And they created the most wonderful things. They, one student composed a piece of music talking about um, fair treatment of Haitian migrants in uh, the Bahamas. Um, another student, she created body art um, to illustrate issues of climate change impacts on women in Bangladesh. But there were so many more. They created games and jewelry and paintings. It was, uh, and I created a gallery of them. And it's just 
I am confident that they will remember those projects and themes and concerns so much more so than if they had just written the essay. They put their hearts um, and their creative expression into those projects. And they, they give me goosebumps to, to look at them. And I am just, I, they transformed my thinking. I'm confident they transformed the thinking of the students and the people who see those projects. I think it causes them to think about those issues slightly differently or learn about them in the first place. There's a transformative potential um, embedded within those creative projects. Um, and I think that's one of the strengths of the Ecology Action Center is bringing the, that creativity to advocacy. Yeah. yeah, and I was thinking about it from the perspective of EAC is a small mosquito in a big tent. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have these big problems and big institutions that we've been grappling with for a long time. And what are some of the tools that we've used or how did it feel Yeah, to be sort of struggling with that scale difference between what was needed and what was possible with the people that we had. Because if, if the EAC is a mosquito, it is a mosquito with flair. <laughs> it is a fabulous fly um, that uh, it's amplifies its voice through creative methods. Um, so drawing on a whole to toolkit of advocacy, different advocacy measures and doing those in really creative ways that garner so much more attention, a disproportionate amount of attention to the size of the organization. Yeah, there's an appetite for that creativity and for a sense of, in some cases, like fun, <laughs> um, seeing possibilities and shaking up a way of seeing or being in the world. I've been saying climate change isn't on our doorstep, it's in our house. You know, we've been doing this amazing work for five decades at EAC, and you and I have been doing it for multiple decades as well. You know, it continues with hope because of, you know, those stories you tell about creativity and how it can be transformative. But there's also, I think, a great sense of, like, despair and disaster that we're living with in this time. Yeah, what are your, your reflections on that? How are you grappling with that? How are your students grappling with that? My sense is, I remember being at the Ecology Action Center around, I think it was 2007, and a group of students from the Shambhala Center came, uh, adult students, uh, came and interviewed different staff members about their work and about advocacy and had enjoyed a conversation one-on-one -on -one with one of these students and then at the end she said she said she was struck by my optimism i hadn't thought of that before and it really it left an impression with me and i through working at the ecology action center and taking action i was empowering myself and i i could enact change or try to enact change and that felt empowering positivity making <laughs> and so i'm really struck since being at the ecology action center i've moved to different cities and i've never found the same thing and trying to find that fit where you can pull up your sleeves and help and so i think the ecology action center is so important for countering despair <laughs> both through the concrete actions, but also just the opportunity to pitch in. I think my students, for example, thinking of this past year in that class I mentioned where they did the creative projects, I think they not only grew more aware of the issues during the semester, but they I think they felt more empowered by the end of the semester. I think at the beginning, it was this amorphous, overwhelming, huge, depressing issue. And by pulling up their sleeves and just cracking on on one small aspect of it, they 
increase their own awareness. They could share that with friends and families. And they also had some concrete ideas of what they needed to do, changes they wanted to make in their life. Um, yeah. One of the ways that I think about, I don't know, the hodgepodge or potpourri that is EAC and all of the different things that we do is that mix between the hard advocacy, like the green mobility strategy in its report form, and the like community engagement, which was the green mobility strategy in its like formation through all those conversations. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just hope that we can continue to reconcile those two things which can be very different often they show up in oh there's one kind of organization that does that kind of thing and another organization that does uh, this other kind of thing and i really like that we still contain all those tensions and complexities is one of my favorite things about eac but it's hard to hard to retain reminds me of one of my other questions which is about what we call the ungovernable structure of eac so we had a We've tried to build our values into our our structure, like how we're governed and who we relate to, how and how decisions are made and how people are engaged. And so, like, what was that like being at EAC? And it was a different time, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, but... It was, well, I, that's... I loved being at the Ecology Action Center. And one of the things that I loved, it, well, I loved so many things. There were so many things that worked in that it created the structure. There was just enough structure there, but not too much. And that allowed projects to go forth and respond as the, the coordinators and as the committee members saw best to move forward on a specific issue. And so that meant that transport and marine had very different approaches, tailored and responsive to a, a specific context. And it, it allowed the strengths of the coordinators to shine through and, and not make them fit into a given box, but appreciate all those different shapes. There was so much autonomy uh, and that was so empowering. And I think that led to the sense of optimism that not only within this organization can I have uh, freedom and respect and dignity and uh, creativity, but that because I can have that in this organization, that means I can dream that for the larger world. Um, so that was reflecting on that conversation I had with the woman from the Shambhala Center. I think that might have been one of the ten not tensions, one of the themes that was running through that she was responding to. I think a lot of people in very in various jobs crave autonomy and creativity and the Ecology Action Center lets people have that. And so we can imagine a world that is brighter and more fair. That's really cool. I hadn't thought about the autonomy also has a quality that helps bring optimism. And I do love that idea that we, you know, we have to start from having a, a snippet of what we want to create, yeah, as an essential component of the process. One of the things I'm curious about is like where things went wrong, how it didn't work, what was really frustrating. Are there things that come to mind for you in that way? Well, I have one issue for sure. <laughs> it involves a birthday cake <laughs> that my mother delivered to the Ecology Action Center. <laughs> and first I had put it aside and it was after the new renovation and I had tucked it into an office and then I emerged at a meeting a few hours later and there was my cake like half eaten not by me so yes that was a real issue um 
aside from that issue, um, like I think so much worked well at the Ecology Action Center from during my from my perspective as part of my experience. It was um, I ended up leaving because I wanted a new challenge. And I also wanted a chance to go deeper. So I was considering academia to explore some topics more in depth. Really only 10 years plus after leaving the Ecology Action Center have I found something commensurate um, at my current job at the University of Manchester in terms of that autonomy and creativity and working with a team of like-minded individuals who, who are idealists who, yeah, so there's not... Looking back, I can see, and as part of a learning curve that so many of us are on, inclusion of diverse perspectives um, and diverse communities in a meaningful way, decolonizing our practices is it's such an ongoing practice that I think was for me felt like it was starting as I was leaving the Ecology Action Center. And I've learned so much by following the Ecology Action Center's activities on that. So I think that's a struggle for so many in Nova Scotia, and we're all on a learning curve together. And I think the EEC, what I admire and respect about the Ecology Action Center is that we have been upfront and said, this is an issue for us, and we are going to, we, we have a learning curve. And so those that want can follow along with that learning curve. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like that's pretty apt. Like, I remember kind of the early efforts we were making. I mean, it always feels like you're stepping on the path for the first time in a lot of that work because Mm. there's so much profound learning and unlearning and it's so baked in, like, back to that earlier thread of our conversation around dominating the environment versus working with the environment. If you were to describe kind of a through line in your work and life from the EAC to now, is there something that that comes to mind? Well, my friendships. (laughs) So uh, colleagues turned into friends, Um, friendships forged in fire. I'm not exactly sure. But the yeah, some of my most meaningful friendships came from my time at the Ecology Action Center. And so that's been just a wonderful gift that keeps on giving um, far beyond and then just the, like, I feel like a, a satellite <laughs> to the EAC community, um, living in the UK, but being from Nova Scotia. And I really just value being in the orbit, um, exposure to the different ideas and issues. And, you know, sometimes I'm closer to it and further away from it, but it just feels like this, yeah, gravitational pull and a sense of community that's there. And it's, it's really nice to know that if I, I hope to move back to Halifax someday and that, that the EAC will be there and I can get involved again. It's uh, into 50 years. That's incredible that that's, that's the case. Sharing some of your work back with the EAC because I think the stuff that you're doing is really interesting and I almost feel like the orbits are coming back, almost like coming back together again with some of the yeah really interesting kind of knowledge mobilization work that you're doing and the deep thinking. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I feel... I don't know what efforts have been done, but the the alumni or uh, diaspora of the EAC uh, across Nova Scotia, Canada, and the world, and what people are up to, and how the the energy of the EAC and those you know crazy offices, um, how that's you know there's part of me that that's reflected in my teaching in Manchester, and they'll never know about the Ecology Action Center, you know they won't volunteer there, but that that energy is being transmitted, and that that comes from that that has a um, now a 50-year history 
um, from the, the, the originators of that, that energy and all the people who've come through the doors that is being distilled and channeled in ways that, that um, and at a scale that's hard to imagine. Yeah, it's, I love that you said that because I know for me, there was a time after I left EAC when things were rough at the EAC and I felt like all of the work that I d- had done for over a decade had kind of like had it vanished or been absorbed into something. And, you know, a lot of my thinking around that was about how the energy of the organization lives on in ways that we don't, that aren't so obvious and, and again, linear to the, like, is the organization still got the welcome mat out in the way that I imagined or some other kind of metaphor, but actually to think about all of the influence that we had and yeah, exactly how that energy continues. That was really important to me at that time in an organization in a, that that's around that long, as in families and um, other institutions, there there will be disruptions. And it, I'm just drawing, thinking of my own research on climate change and disruptive severe weather events and what that, what those disruptions enable. They, they have, they have negative impacts and, uh, but they also have upsides that can be taken advantage of. And they can also often make you appreciate what you have or see differently think about how a relationship between two things needs to shift. You know, there's lots of stories from the past, from before our time of like, oh, we almost ran the organization into the ground because we took DFO to court and lost and, and then rebuilt from that. And so, yeah, it's interesting to think about it like a, yeah, the fruitfulness of of the disruption is also there. Birthday cakes being misappropriated. I mean, there's yeah. a lot. <laughs> I feel like perhaps a public apology. <laughs> it's a good time for reflection about the past. And it makes me just think, you know, where are we going to be? Like, are we going to be celebrating the 80th birthday of the Ecology Action Center in 30 years together? Like doing another podcast? That's uh it's uh it's a, it's a treasure. The Ecology Action Center is a treasure. Well, thank you for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you.